So uh, the scripture reading today is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and Mark chapter 11, verse 1 to 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mount on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their uh, cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Addy, for emotional support for Luke as he was reading. It's wonderful to see both of you up there this morning. Well, we have arrived on Palm Sunday. And here we have arrived at this text in our book of Mark called The Triumphant Entry. Now, in this series, we've been calling this Miracles of Mark, and we're, we're looking at how Jesus' miracles aren't just about the extraordinary grace that Jesus is demonstrating here, but teaching us something about who Jesus is and who we are in light of what he has done. That in reading these miracles, we're actually seeing ways in which Jesus is giving us today ordinary grace for life and how we live it. And so, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem right now in this text, but it isn't as triumphant as one might assume. It's triumphant in ways that might not be visible right away. So, Palm Sunday is the start of, historically, what Christians have referred to as Holy Week, the week of Jesus' passion culminating in his resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. And the inauguration of this event that we see here today is Jesus doing something that typically wasn't done by travelers going to Jerusalem. Most people would walk the last several miles as they would have been very accustomed to doing, but Jesus takes another mode of transportation that is a deeper meaning than the surface level of what we see. Like the crowd's response, as worshipful and wonderful as it looks, It isn't quite what we anticipate it to be either. And this all comes together in a way that shows us something powerful about Jesus and something that speaks to us today. But before we begin, can we pray together? Father, as we hear your word preached to us this morning, Jesus has brought about the kingdom and we await a greater kingdom to come. May your word speak now the truth of Christ as the messianic king. Let our hearts and minds be set towards a greater love for you because of the preaching of your word and a greater love for neighbor because of the preaching of your word. May your spirit speak now. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. I'd like to begin with uh, an analogy that I think is appropriate to carry us through the sermon today. Um, And it begins with this incredibly frustrating book from my childhood called Magic Eye. Did anyone here grow up with the Magic Eye books and the series of books? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Magic Eye was a series of illustrations that when you looked at it made absolutely no sense at all. It just seemed like just a very just muddy picture. But, but hidden in every single Magic Eye illustration was a 3D image that if you were to look in a way that looked beyond the picture, a 3D image would shoot up you in your face when you pressed it against it and, and took back and you blurred your eyes. Um, so a 3D image would show. So to, just to kind of uh, give you a little bit of illustration, right? So this is a Magic Eye illustration. And supposedly, if you stared at it and tried to look beyond the picture, a 3D image of something else would pop right at you. I'll give you like three seconds, right, to see if you can spot the 3D image ahead of you. All right, now just a show of hands here. How many of you see a 3D image right, in front of you, right? Good. Okay, so I'm not alone in my frustration with Magic Eye growing up as a kid. Apparently, you're supposed to see a gecko in the 3D image behind this, right? And some, as a kid, I hated Magic Guy because I would spend like hours in, in front of these images going back and forth trying to find these images correctly. Even though apparently something was hiding in plain sight in front of me, I couldn't see it for what it truly was. So what did I do? I pretended to all my friends that I knew what the image was. I pretended that I understood what was in front of me, even though I had like no clue. Today's text is like a little bit of a magic eye image, only it deals with who Jesus is, the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see Jesus's identity hiding in plain sight here as told through Old Testament images and pictures. And in doing so, uh, we're going to see three things about Jesus as king today. So we're going to talk about, one, Jesus is the promised king in this text. Two, Jesus is the humble king. And then three, uh, Jesus is the saving king. So Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the humble king. And finally, Jesus is the saving king. So let's start first with the idea that Jesus is the promised king. And uh, with this, we have to remind ourselves to place our reading of this gospel at the time of where Mark's readers would have heard it. When Mark wrote his gospel, see, he was writing to a group of Christians who are being blamed for the burning of Rome. The fear of being a Christian in Mark's day was real. It, it meant that you were hunted down by the Roman Empire. It meant you were almost certainly, if you were caught, going to lose your property, your family, and even your life for just being a Christian. So Mark's purpose in writing the gospel was to remind the church that Jesus himself is going through the same kind of suffering. Jesus himself is the suffering servant, someone who faced in the pathway to the cross the very same persecutions and suffering that the church is anticipating. And Mark's gospel is saying to them, hold on, because Jesus is, in fact, in spite of everything that he is going to go through, as I tell you this story, he is the great and promised king. But if you've been following us in this sermon series, you know that Mark's gospel, and the way that he tells the story of Jesus, he doesn't come out and rightfully say ever that Jesus is the messianic king. 
In fact, the word Messiah never appears in the Gospel of Mark. The phrase king to Jesus is only attributed to Jesus in ironic mockery from those who would torment Jesus on the cross. So the word messianic king for Jesus never appears in Mark. But it's right there, hiding in plain sight. It, it's the way that Mark constructs his gospel. It's what some commentators call the messianic secret of Mark. So Mark is using this triumphal entry as a way, kind of like a magic eye image, to show that Jesus is the messianic king hiding in plain sight. Well, how do we see it? Well, despite no one truly acknowledging Jesus as king, we read of the triumphant, we read in this story, he is nevertheless the promised messianic king that the people of God have been waiting for all this time. See, the king that was long promised, so in other words, that the, the, the Christians who were worried about persecution, worried about the state of the world, when it appears that everything is going in such a way that is anti-Christianity, Jesus is still the long-awaited king, and he is there. So where is he? First, let's examine the location where Jesus is when he makes his request to the disciples. Notice that Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, a place of great significance to the Jews who are awaiting the coming of the Messiah. It was the Mount of Olives where King David worshipped the Lord in 2 Samuel 15 after experiencing great suffering in Jerusalem. It was the Mount of Olives where in Ezekiel chapter 11, all right, Ezekiel was given a vision that the kingdom of Israel would be restored. It was the glory of the Lord that went from Jerusalem to where? Mount of Olives. It was in Zechariah chapter 14 where the Mount of Olives would be the stage for the final judgment of the Lord to take place. So, so Mark is showing Jesus in the Mount of Olives is more than just simply to locate Jesus and where he is in the story. He's calling and reminding people of these significant places of the Old Testament to remind them of what the place is supposed to signify. The Mount of Olives is a place of restoration. It's a place of worship. It's a place of judgment. It's all tied to the work of what the Messiah will come again and do. The backdrop of the, of the beginning of this story tells us the importance of what it means clearly. Uh, when you, just to kind of hit this analogy home, when you see a photo of a place that you visited before, right, all these memories begin to hit you of how important that place was in your life, right? So um, as we're unpacking page and I, and I, and I found this old uh, Polaroid of a gazebo in Highland, Maryland, right? Now, to, to all, anyone who just looks at the picture, you'll just see a gazebo on a farm. But for us, that place has, has great significance. It's where we had our live stream wedding after COVID canceled all of our wedding plans, right? So when we see that gazebo, we see something significant, important. We see something that's treasured. When Jesus is at the Mount of Olives, right, Mark is calling his gospel readers to, to experience the same connection. The Messiah, the work of God in restoring Israel is from the Mount of Olives. But it's not just the location. It's also the request that Jesus has to two of his disciples. So Jesus asked two of his disciples to find something in a village on the way to Jerusalem. It's a cult or understood as a donkey in Jesus' age and, and one that they would be able to claim to the owner of this colt or donkey that the Lord uh, has need of it. We want you to get this donkey so that no one will suspect you of theft 
and then you will take it on your way. And this cult, by the way, would be a cult that no one has ever written before. Now, for Jesus to know the outcome of the request and the state of the donkey's unwritten status is astounding. That the disciples went and it played out exactly as Jesus has said is a miracle in and of itself. But, but what is this miracle showing us? What is hiding in plain sight about the promise of the king? Now, uh, you may have been told growing up that Christ is, is, is this humble king, very meek in the fact that he's riding a donkey, which seems to us a very lowly animal to ride into a city with. After all, most kings in Jesus' age would come into cities on war horses. So it seems like Jesus' arrival with a donkey would indicate a sense of lowliness on the surface. And, and you'd be correct in that. But as always with Jesus, there's something much more going on here that demonstrates that Jesus is the messianic king. For one, we have to remind ourselves of one of the very first promises on the lineage of the king, that this king would bear the family name in the line of Judah. And if you look at this promise of the king in Genesis 49, 10 to 11, you will read a promise given by Jacob to his son, Judah. And I want, you, I want us to read this together. This, uh, not together. Uh, I just want you to look at this as I read this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So here we see the line of Judah, a son of Judah, where the nations would come to bring tribute and that he will bring about the obedience of the people under his reign, so much so that the prosperity of the land would be so great that he could tie a donkey to a vine and this donkey could eat however much he wished. That's sort of like the, the flex of the prosperity of God's kingdom, right? Even the donkeys get to eat from choice vines. This is an incredible prophecy for Judah, saying that the line of the kingship of Israel one day will bring about a king that brings about the kingdom in such amazing fashion that people would even be able to wash their clothes in wine. Think about how expensive that would be. But what is noted about this donkey? It has never been written before. Now, this might seem a flyover fact that Jesus is requesting, but there is, again, a deep Old Testament significance to what is happening in the narrative here. Animals that are devoted to repentance, purification, or offering were never meant to be written, according to these three texts that we'll have up here, Numbers 19.2, Deuteronomy 21.3, and 1 Samuel 6-7. In each of these, right, we see that these animals that have never been written before are consecrated because they're either to be used in sacrifice or they are considered to be sacred and holy. And finally, our Old Testament reading from this morning, Zechariah 9.9, and the prophecy given to Israel showing that the fall of Israel's enemies would come with the entry of its king to Jerusalem. And the sign of this coming king of Zion who crushed the enemies of God's people is a king coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey. So, let's add all of these things up together. All right? The disciples in verse 4 see this unwritten donkey in this village that clearly isn't in the kingdom of God that is promised. It's not in Jerusalem. So what do they do to the donkey? They untie it. Why? 
to give it to Jesus, this great king, the one in the line of Judah, the kingly line of David, who would then ride this donkey to Jerusalem, right? the city that was at the time the kingdom of God waiting its full restoration. So Jesus is in this moment symbolizing everything that the lion of Judah was supposed to do to bring about the obedience of the peoples, the king bringing in salvation, bringing in the blessings of the kingdom, mounted on a donkey whose very purity signifies redemption and cleansing of sins, bringing with it the hope of the end of God's enemies in judgment and righteousness. So do you see the picture that Mark is painting in these first several verses? Palm Sunday isn't just about Jesus riding an animal and everyone throwing a big parade for Jesus. It's more than just Jesus signifying his perfect foreknowledge about what would happen, about seeing this donkey that never had been ridden before. Palm Sunday is seeing that Jesus is fulfilling every promise made by God about what the messianic king would do. God is not late in fulfilling his promises. And his promises unfold in this beautiful, deep, rich, amazing ways that highlights the trustworthiness of his promises and, and the patience that he has with God's people as he fulfills his mission. So what would this have meant for the hearers of Mark's gospel? It would have been hard to see the coming kingdom of God in their day. It would have been hard to imagine the scene of Christians being martyred at the stake that that somehow is a sign that God is fulfilling his promises. All that would have seemed to be contradictory. But remember where Jesus is heading to. He's heading to the cross in this narrative. The way that the king brings about the coming of the kingdom, the way in which the cleansing of sin of, that the unwritten donkey would have symbolized, the way in which God would defeat the enemies of Satan with the coming of this king, is that this king would suffer an unimaginable death in order for God's promises to come to fruition. For Mark's gospel hearers, they needed to hear that Jesus Christ is fulfilling God's promises, not in the triumphal way that we would imagine, but in the suffering servant dying, giving up his own life, taking up the cross for us so that we may walk in the footsteps of our Savior, to take up our own crosses. Whatever that might mean for Mark's gospel here or for you this morning, to take up our own crosses and follow him. You see, the path to God's glory leads to the suffering of Christ. And we, as his followers, as his disciples, might expect the very same thing as we follow him. So city of hope. You can trust that God will fulfill every promise he has made, even if we don't understand all the trials that are in front of us right now. As followers of Christ, not everything in redemptive history is always going to be crystal clear to us, just as it was in God's people in every generation. The triumphal entry could look a lot like a season of suffering and a season of despair. Maybe the thing that we need to hear most, the most powerful thing that we glean from this, for those of us who are in the pit, your suffering might mean that you are closer to the grace of God and nearer to Christ than you were without it. 
your trials, your heartaches, the trials you're facing, the things that we see on the news every single week, demonstrate to us that Christ is near to us because He has gone through exactly the same things. In this, you and your pain are experiencing uh, the nearness to Christ that you could ever face. In, even in your happiest moments, you wouldn't be able to, uh, to glean that, but in your suffering, you can. And that means you understand then not just the sufferings of Christ, but the love that Jesus has for you all the much more. How he has delivered you from the times that you felt like this in the past and also the times that he has restored your soul. So in other words, we can trust in God's promises today because he has delivered on the promises of yesterday. He has delivered on all the ways this messianic king would go into Jerusalem and head to the suffering of the cross. So trust and believe and hope in this promised king. And that leads us to our second reality in this, in that Jesus is the humble king. Now, how is Jesus' humility on display here? Even as he's being worshipped, even heralded. Uh, looking at this narrative, this hardly seems like a humble moment, all right, when Jesus has fans on all sides of him, worshipping him. It seems like a grand welcome for anyone that's coming into Jerusalem. Every visible sign here of the crowd's response would appear that this is the coming and arrival of a true king. It truly looks a lot like 1 Kings 138, where Sol Solomon rides into his anointing as king, and 2 Kings 9.13, where King Jehu, the king of Israel, had people place down garments just like they placed down garments for Jesus to declare that Jehu is king. So it seems like a very glorious thing. What's humble about this? Uh, until you kind of, again, look beyond what you see in front of you and see some very important facts about these worshipers that are greeting Jesus and even the disciples themselves. First, we have to question the sincerity of the crowds that are praising Jesus in this moment. This kind of greeting for pilgrims wasn't just unique to Jesus. It was actually very commonplace for people to have these greetings for people entering festivals like Passover. So biblical scholars note the phrase that's being exclaimed from the crowds here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sounds like a very worshipful phrase, but actually it was just a very commonplace phrase used back in the day for pilgrims greeting other pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. So in other words, it's a phrase that sounds very pious, but actually can almost be a throwaway line. Uh, it's kind of the analogy of this. Is when I, was, I, I lived in the South for about two and a half years, and there is this phrase that many of you Southerners know, right? Uh, it's this throwaway line. It's this phrase, bless his heart. All right? If you were South, you know what this means, right? Bless his heart. And when I, when I came to the South, I was like, wow, these people are so kind, right? They're saying, bless this individual. They're, they're asking for God's blessing on this person. And then this friend of mine who's living in Charleston kindly told me, no, 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 no. Bless his heart is not what you think it means. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's bless his heart. It's, it's, it sounds really good. No, no. Bless his heart is actually a very derogatory phrase. I'm like, what are you talking about? It means that he's just like a naive person or a person that he tries so hard or a person who's just, you know, he's just, ah, oh, we're rooting for him, right? Bless his heart. But it's actually kind of almost a looking down kind of a statement. 
right? So this statement, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, being exclaimed to Jesus, is kind of this throwaway line. They, they may not be as sincere to the king as we imagine. Now, how do we know this? Well, there's a couple of evangel signs. Uh, one, the crowds after Jesus' arrival disperse and never worship Christ in the same way for the rest of his life. Uh, two, uh, the Roman officials who would have almost certainly would have been alarmed if a new king was coming to threaten their throne uh, weren't even involved in this scene, which implies, as, as studiers of the text have, have discovered, that the number of people in the crowds was probably barely statistically significant. And three, the disciples themselves have a very little understanding of what is actually happening in front of them, as we read in John chapter 12, verse 16. Um, his disciples did not understand these things at first. Um, we can go back, right? Uh, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remember that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So, even though we see this picture of grandeur and worship and exclamations of praise, this is supposed to be this triumphal entry, but there's a way that you look at this and you go, actually, this seems very, very, like something that's not triumphant at all. They, people might have a working knowledge of Jesus. They might know him as a great healer. But their actions after this event surely go to acknowledge that while they acknowledge Jesus on paper, they haven't made him a king at all. The messianic secret remains a secret. The magic eye photo is still veiled. So think of now the humility of Jesus coming into Jerusalem to redeem his people, knowing what he will suffer, greeted by this insignificant, statistically insignificant group of people who don't even really understand what they're doing or saying. Not even Jesus' disciples have a grasp of what's happening on Palm Sunday. And he's riding this donkey, right? Not in this sign of grandeur. He doesn't have any possessions of his own. The donkey isn't even his. He doesn't have competent disciples. He's hated by those in society, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that are most respected in the world. And you see this picture and you realize the humility of Christ in this moment. He still heads to the cross. That should speak volumes to us about the character of Christ. Think about it. If you were Jesus in this moment, knowing the hearts of the people, in this, how would you react? with disappointment, with reluctance, with maybe even anger that people cannot see you for what you really are. Perhaps maybe even you see yourselves as one of these worshipers. Perhaps maybe worship to you over the last several years has become unintelligible. Or maybe you're questioning even your own heart, the sincerity of your own worship. And maybe if you're being honest, much of the symbols of Palm Sunday, Easter, much of worship, much of the Christian life, uh, you might be going through the motions of things. You might be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but you're wondering what the cross means for you today. But what does Jesus do? He still goes to the cross for these people. He still goes to the cross for you who are wrestling with all of these doubts, he still readies himself 
for the crucifixion. The character of Christ is one of deep humility and reminds us of the king that we worship. He is the king who suffers and dies for his people. He is the king who calls his disciples to be his servants by washing their feet. Jesus' triumphal entry in all of its humility shows us the humble Christ who despite all the circumstances of what he sees around him in this moment still goes and, change, and does, this does not change the purpose to which he was called. And what happens then? Though the disciples can't see it, though the crowds may not realize it, though the symbolism is lost to everyone but Jesus, Jesus is the saving king, the God who saves. Our last point here today. The exclamation of the crowd here in Mark's gospel is a word that we use in church and sing in our songs, and this is the yearly reminder of what the word actually means, this word Hosanna. Hosanna is a word that literally, woodenly translated is save, I pray, but probably the, more, the, the meaning of the phrase is Lord, save us. Lord, save us. So when these crowds are saying Hosanna, the implications that they're making are cultural and political. They see Jesus as this miraculous prophet who could overthrow the political and cultural forces that are preventing the true Israel to come about. Certainly, this is the mistake that even Jesus' disciples make about Jesus' ministry and his mission. The salvation that the people are longing for, you see, that they're asking and, and crying out for in Hosanna is present-minded. It's the realizations that the circumstances that surround them, they want deliverance from. And so they worship Jesus to remove the sufferings of their current moment. This would be this idea of this Lord who was saving them to bring about military revolution, that the Roman Empire would be overthrown in glorious fashion. So perhaps this miracle worker from Nazareth would be the one to display his saving power with brute might and force to restore Israel. Redemption is judgment, and Jesus would spill the blood of others so that they would be redeemed. Hosanna. That is the mindset of these crowds. See, the irony of this text we have to dive into this because, again, we're sometimes sitting on this side of redemptive history and we know the story, we don't realize what their expectations were. But the irony is that the people don't realize how Jesus will save them. Jesus is giving them exactly what they're praising him for in a way that they would never expect. Jesus is the messianic king, yes, who will one day fully realize all that they hope the kingdom of God to be, but it wouldn't be in cultural and political overthrow. It wouldn't be through military might. It wouldn't be just for the nation of Israel. It would be for the entire world. As always in the case of Jesus' ministry, the salvation that Jesus is providing is beyond our expectations. The promised king, humble king, overthrows not just the present darkness of Rome, but he overthrows the power of Satan's sin and death. The promised, humble, saving king brings revolution, not through military might, 
but tells Peter to put away the sword and instead brings revolution through the humility of the church and the body of Christ. The promised humble saving king doesn't seek political or cultural power or overthrow, but rather gives up his life for the very people who have yet to understand him. How does Jesus save us? He saves it through the sacrifice of not the spilled blood of others, but the spilling of his own blood. Broken for you. That's the second Adam. The king who dies for his people. How does Jesus save? As Romans 8 reminds us, through his love for you and I. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. How does Jesus save? Jesus saves his people by satisfying the debt that we owe to God the Father, by surrendering his own life and paying the price that we should have paid. You see, Jesus is the saving king. The God that we cry out to Hosanna today is, is the God that is not delaying in his plan for redemption or the bringing about of his kingdom. This promised, humble, saving king is doing that work in you and I today in our own hearts by transforming and redeeming us as his people to go out and bring about the kingdom of God. Not in the way that we think about Hosanna, but through the pathway of the cross. So the beautiful picture told in this story is that it blends in what is so obvious right in front of us. This is a triumphal entry, but not in the way that we would expect. And so this is true of the Christian life. We who have grown up as Christians longing to see Jesus clearly can often find ourselves losing him in the image of our own making. But when you look at texts like this more carefully, you see Jesus shine as the Messiah he is. We realize that the people who did not know what they were saying in fullness, in worshiping God, yet Jesus is still fulfilling everything that they proclaimed him to be. So church, take heart. Through the imperfectness of our worship, of our own lives, Jesus is fulfilling his promises to you and I today. And he's showing us the pathway of humility. And he's showing us that he has saved us. Not through the triumph and joy and happiness that we expect of Hosanna, but through the cross that saves us. So let's pray that. Let's pray, pray together.